0: Well, I think as Christians, we tend to think that the more obvious, overt sins are more serious to God. And the high-profile sins like murder, adultery, theft, idolatry. And these certainly are serious sins. They capture the headlines of being offensive to God in Scripture. And so as long as you stay away from the big ones, you gain a little sense of being holy or righteous. But you might be surprised to learn just how seriously God takes the the smaller, covert sins. The hidden sins that go unnoticed by us. Talking about the wide range of sins, you you might call smaller sins that the ones you're so used to, you might not even recognize you're doing them anymore. These sins become habits that are accepted and and tolerated by us, but not by God. They include anger, pride, impatience, irritability, envy, jealousy, anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, gossip, and lack of self-control. Now that list of sins hits a little closer to home for us. We constantly need to be on the lookout for such tolerated sins in our lives. And if I could add one covert sin to that list, it would be complaining. Complaining is a perfect example of a small little sin that slips right by us. It's not flashy. It's not overt. It doesn't draw attention. Everyone does it. So it doesn't stand out. It's so common in our lives and the lives of others. We, we grow accustomed to it. It's just part of what we do. Yet to God, complaining is quite a significant sin because as you follow that weed down to its roots, you find it grows out of the soil of of selfishness and gratitude and even rebellion. And God does not take lightly selfishness and gratitude and especially rebellion. That brings great dishonor to him. Imagine you have a son and you're struggling to make ends meet. You don't have a lot, but you know, he he desperately wants just just a bicycle a new bicycle. So you sacrifice. You work overtime. You decide to save up. You finally have enough money. So you buy him a brand new, pretty nice bike. You present it to him. And when he sees it, how does he respond? He says, I don't want to ride that. I don't want that color. I don't like that style. I I don't want this. I don't like it. Now, as a parent, would you be okay with that response? I'm going to say no. I mean that that complaining response is just unacceptable. Why? Well, when you think about it, such complaining is doubly offensive. I mean, for one, the child is offending you for not appreciating your sacrifice and your grace gift. And two, that the child in a way is offending everyone else who is less fortunate, who has nothing. And granted, that child may not have much, but he's still. As much to be thankful for, and at the very least he should be extremely thankful that he has a parent who loves him enough to sacrifice for him and and give him a, a good gift it 's not wrong to have preferences it 's not wrong to not like the color of the bike or the style of the bike, but it is wrong to complain because it reveals that heart of selfishness ingratitude and, and rebellion. When you understand that, you can see why complaining is such a significant sin. Before God as well. Parents give so much to their children in love. In fact, early on without the loving care of their parents, I mean, children could not even survive. Parents give them food and clothing and shelter and they spend thousands of dollars to raise them over the years and just even, even just to bless them. But infinitely more so, God gives us life. And on top of that, countless blessings of his grace. We owe literally every good thing we have to God's grace. And for those who know Christ, we even owe him our eternal salvation. And there's no greater gift than that. God has given us all we need in Christ. We are truly blessed. But when we complain really about anything, it's more of a a slap in the face to God than to our parents. That's how we are expressing our own ultimate Ingratitude or selfishness or even rebellion. If you can understand how parents would be offended by their children complaining, then you should understand how God would be offended by his children complaining all the more so. Complaining may be a sin that we tolerate or don't even notice, but it is not that way with God. And to learn this lesson, you can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and just as the sin of complaining often goes unnoticed, so does this tiny little passage in Philippians 2, but it's worth having our eyes open to it that you might not be inadvertently tolerating some weeds in your life. Just by way of background as I get started, I originally preached this text several years ago when we went through Philippians This passage on complaining, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Back then, it just so happened, unplanned, just so happened to fall on Mother's Day. This was a Mother's Day sermon. But I decided I would still preach it on Mother's Day because moms have to deal with the complaining of their kids all the time, and they themselves have to be on guard against complaining about their kids in return. So I figured it would still work. But this issue literally hits all of us. I mean, who here is without the fault of complaining, even just a little? And we need to see, though, how our complaining, even when it's, it's not directly directed at God, is still offensive to God. I also figured this would be an especially pertinent message to preach again now that we're in the midst of the pandemic and focusing and before we get back to Colossians, just kind of focusing on these issues to help shepherd our church through this time. And we know there's, in the midst of this pandemic we're in, there's been some virus hotspots, some places in the country that have seen a lot of cases of sickness and even a higher death count. Our area is not one of those hotspots, just the opposite. We've not really seen much of an impact of the virus. And so to us, and especially as the lockdown continues, it's, it's more of just an inconvenience to our lives. People can handle inconvenience when it's a matter of life and death, but when that life and death threat passes, but the inconvenience remains, watch out. Grumbling and complaining are just around the corner. But as Christians, we really have to guard against this. This is not to say we don't take action, this is not to say we don't make decisions. It's just to say that a complaining spirit should not be a part of our response to any of our circumstances. Would you agree? If you don't agree, well, this passage is going to make it pretty clear. Philippians is a very autobiographical letter. Paul is giving the church a personal ministry status report. He begins his first main introduction, or rather main exhortation to the church in the letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 27. In fact, you can look there now to begin. After a long intro that's very autobiographical, he gets to his first exhortation to them, his main one, Philippians 1, 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together For the faith of the gospel. Living in light of the gospel. Or living in light of our salvation. That's what he's getting at here. That's the center of his admonition. But you can notice the, the undercurrent of unity. They are also called to stand firm in one spirit. And to strive together with one mind. That's critical for the church. And he brings this up because disunity and dissension were becoming serious problems for this otherwise healthy church. Some fault lines were forming over non-gospel issues in the Philippian church, but that is unacceptable to God. And Paul himself had a vested interest. He's the one who planted the Philippian church. He set them on their course. He labored to see them grow Christ-likeness. The last thing he wanted was to see this church implode over petty differences and and divide, which would make his labor, in a sense, in vain. And so a lot of what he writes in Philippians has to do with the theme of unity. And that applies to our passage today. You know, right before our text in chapter 2, you have another, you might say, landmark passage where Paul reiterates his main exhortation to them in a, in a potent and succinct way. Look at Philippians two twelve and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Right before he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's a call to obedience. It's a call to grow in Christlikeness, to not coast in neutral, but to actively pursue sanctification, while all the while realizing the power for such growth comes from God. We know that we're saved by grace through faith, apart from works, apart from our effort, but after salvation, God expects us to get to work. God's standard for holy living still applies. It's not a means of achieving righteousness. We're granted righteousness by his grace, but it's a means of displaying righteousness, putting on display the new nature, the new birth the righteousness he's given to us. Obedience still matters. It's how we are pleasing to God as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 127, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So after exhorting the Philippians to, to press on, to keep working out their salvation, God worked in their salvation. Now they need to work it out or live it out. Well, now Paul is going to follow up with some specific commands to obey God. Some more specific ways they can work out their salvation. What's so interesting though is, What he brings up first. What's the first thing he mentions after this renewed call to obedience? He doesn't first address lying or stealing or anger, violence, adultery, sexual sins, drunkenness, idolatry. No, the first thing he brings up after this renewed call to obedience is complaining. Complaining. The sin of complaining is like a riptide. It often goes unnoticed, but if you get caught in it, it can do you some real harm. And for the Philippians, it seems like their complaining even contributed to their division and dissension. And that's not surprising. And do you expect a complaining spirit to unite people? When has that ever happened? But worse, it can divide us from God. And so we need to consider this important exhortation to obedience, to grow in an area of obedience to the Lord. So let's read now our passage, Philippians two, fourteen through 16. He says right after, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above approach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In all, this is a very simple passage. There's one command, three reasons for the command. That's it. It's a very straightforward one command, three reasons, but Paul's instructions for the Philippians prove quite timeless for the church today. Especially since complaining is still a, a hidden sin that can undermine good churches, good relationships. And so we too would do well to progress in our obedience to the Lord and living out the gospel by putting away this sin of complaining. Let's learn about it. Let's take a closer look at this passage. And we'll start by exploring the basic command. We're just going to begin with the command in verse 14 Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Or your version might read, do all things without complaining or arguing. And on the surface, it it says what it means, and it means what it says. Just don't complain, don't argue. It's pretty straightforward. The first word is translated in NASB, grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. It's a synonym for complaining. When you don't like something, When something doesn't go your way, the natural response of your flesh is to grumble, to complain, to murmur, whether it's out loud or under your breath or even in your mind. This is a way of expressing your dissatisfaction with something. The second term is disputing. Grumbling often comes with disputing. This word, dialogismos in the Greek, is a word from which we get uh, the word dialogue, Such dialoguing can be a virtue or a vice. This word can be used in a positive sense, just referring to, you know, reasoning something through, thinking something out. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a negative sense where this word refers to disputing and arguing. This is the difference between helpful discussion and contentious debate. And here Paul is referencing the latter. This is the person who, when told to do something by their authority, they talk back, they dispute, they argue. Another parenting example, you say a mom tells her kids to go clean her rooms, her two daughters. The first daughter talks back and says, why should I? I, I, It's just going to get dirty tomorrow. Why should I have to clean my room? And so now the mother has to win an argument just to be obeyed. The other child though, goes off, cleans her room, but the mom later comes and finds it. It's still dirty And she says, I thought I told you to clean your room. And the child says, well, I did, but you didn't define what you meant by clean. So this is clean to me. You see, both of these kids are disputers. Instead of simply obeying the command of their authority and and honoring their parents, which God tells them to do, they dispute it. This is wrong before our earthly parents, and it's much more wrong before our heavenly father. And it's wrong before God all the time. Notice verse 14, it doesn't say do some things. It says do all things without grumbling or disputing, complaining or arguing. It's a present imperative, meaning these are standing orders. It pertains to all things, which goes back to the call to obedience from verse 12. The Philippians are, are called to grow in their obedience to God and all things. And these two attitudes, Of complaining and arguing must not accompany their obedience, as they obey God. Don't complain about it and don't argue about it. Complaining and arguing are are subtle sins that can spoil otherwise good deeds. They're kind of like rotten eggs mixed into a cake and just they spoil the whole recipe. Here's an example using hospitality from 1 Peter 4 19. It says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I wonder why Peter felt the need to add that little qualifier. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That's easier said than done. And imagine you've got some neighbors who are Christians. They go to your church. Their house has a huge plumbing disaster, massive leak, floods the whole house. They're going to have to leave for several weeks while it gets fixed. And at the same time, they're really tight on funds. They need a place to stay for a little while at least. And so you offer them to come stay in your house. You're going to show them hospitality in a time of need. That's a good deed. You want to genuinely help them out. But it doesn't take long before things start to bother you. They're incredibly messy. They, they've left a huge pile of dishes. You can't really enjoy your living room. They're kind of all over the place. You've got to share a bathroom. It's just starting to wear on you. And so in private, you complain to your spouse you say, you know, these people are just so messy. I'm tired of having to to share quarters with them. They they leave all these dishes everywhere. I just I want my living room back so I can relax. This is my little, you know, castle, and they're really getting in my way. You murmur under your breath, maybe you're even short with your new house guests. Now look, have you helped them out with your hospitality? Yes, you've done a good thing before the Lord, but At the same time, in God's eyes, that that good deed is spoiled because you've mixed in grumbling and complaining. And so it goes with all things. All things can be ruined by the companion sins of complaining and arguing. And so that's why the command is to do all things without complaining and arguing, grumbling and disputing. These attitudes must have no part in our obedience to God. So that's the command. Like I said, it's, it's not complicated. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't complain. Don't argue. Instead, just obey God with a happy heart. God calls you to obedience in his word. We obey with a happy heart. It sounds simple. It is simple. It should be simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do. It often is not easy to do. Why is that? Why is complaining such a natural response for us? It is for me. Why is it that whenever trouble comes or or something doesn't go our way, we're so prone to grumble and complain? Well, the answer has to do with our fallen natures. I mean, what were Adam and Eve doing when they fell into sin? They were, in effect, casting off God's authority over them. God was their creator. He had full rights and privileges over them, his creation. He's entitled to tell them what to do. And at the same time, his will is just best. It's actually best for them. But in sin, they came to believe that their will was best. They knew better than their creator. And so they cast off his authority. They disobeyed. They rebelled. And we now inherit that same sin nature. It's just part of our nature to go against God's authority. That's the nature of all sin. And what you need to understand is that that same heart of rebellion is actually what's behind our every complaint. Maybe you don't think about it that way. You probably think complaining is not that big of a deal. That's why we call it a small sin. But really, when you, when you trace that back, it's going to come back to a heart of rebellion against God and his sovereign control over whatever it is you're complaining about. That's the deeper reason why complaining and disputing are such serious offenses to God. They're akin to the sin of rebellion. Now, this is worth our time to help you actually see for yourselves, to better understand why these are not just insignificant offenses to God. There's no greater example of this than... Israel after the Exodus. One of the reasons this is included in scripture is to teach us this lesson, according to 1 Corinthians 10. So let's consider the example of Israel after the Exodus. In fact, the same word for grumbling in our text, that word is used to describe Israel many times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it's not in a good way. It's not a compliment for Israel. This is a rebuke. How did Israel respond to their circumstances? They grumbled and complained. They argued, they disputed that this was them. They they did the opposite of verse 14. Anytime they were threatened or anytime they were just inconvenienced, they responded by complaining. This started at the very beginning, right after they're delivered from Egypt. God displayed his power, you know, 10 plagues. He made Pharaoh... Let them go. So off they go. But Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes after them with his mighty chariots. And when the people see his army chasing after them, how do they respond? Well, they start to complain right away. The Exodus isn't even finished yet. They start to complain. Exodus 14, verses 11 through 12. It says, Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you see how this response reveals a lack of trust in God? Nevertheless, God in his grace, he still delivers the people, though they're already beginning to grumble. He still delivers them. You know, a little something called the parting of the Red Sea. They safely escape Pharaoh's army. After that, they praise God. And that's only right. But then just a few days later, what happens? Just three days later, they're right back to, forget the Red Sea, we got problems, we need to complain. Exodus 15:22 through 24 is just 3 days later. It says then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went out to the wilderness of Shur and they went 3 days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter, therefore it was named Marah, so the people grumbled at Moses saying, "What shall we drink?" Now, understand the distinction. When you're in desperate need of water, it's not wrong to state your need. It's not wrong to cry out for help. It's not what we're talking about. These people were not asking in faith. They were complaining in doubt. I hope you see the distinction. But God, again, graciously provided for them. He gave them water. But that didn't last long. Shortly after the water, they start to get hungry. They forget all about the Red Sea. They forget all about the provision of the water. Now they're just hungry. And it's time to grumble and dispute over food. Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. It says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt? When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What's it going to take for this people to simply trust God's will for their lives? I mean, God has had displayed his power time and time again. He, He had proved he cares for them. He's not going to let them starve to death. He will provide for their needs. So why wouldn't they just Trust God to provide. And look, if you need to pray, pray. Let your request be made known. But this grumbling, this disputing, this complaining is something different. They're not trusting God. Nevertheless, God's mercy was renewed. He provides yet again for this people. This time, He sends down manna from heaven, like total supernatural provision. No other, there's no natural explanation for the manna. Every day, as much as they needed, they got their food. You would think that'd be enough. That would be enough to finally convince this people, Look, just be content. You may not have everything you want, but be content. God has provided for your needs. Be content, be thankful, trust him to provide, and keep going. But no. A short while later, Red Sea is not enough. The water is not enough. The manna. It's not enough. They want meat. And they grumble. They complain. This is now into Numbers chapter 11 verse 4. Which takes us further into the wilderness period. Numbers eleven four says. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said. Who will give us meat to eat? Once again they longed for all the food they had in Egypt. They complained to Moses they've got nothing but this manna they're just getting sick and tired of the same manna every day and that's not wrong to have a preference but their response of grumbling complaining against God is i mean just imagine God had miraculously supplied them with food from heaven every day but that's not enough and when their greedy desires weren't met they complained this time, though, God had had enough. His patience had run out. His anger was kindled and he was going to discipline them. And why? Why, why is God so offended by this? Well, I hope it's obvious. They're not just asking for help. Their complaining rather is akin to unbelief and akin to rebellion. Their dissatisfaction really was with God and his plan for them even though God was redeeming them, he's bringing them into the promised land. They were essentially spitting in his face because he was not accommodating their every desire. He wasn't giving them all the things they wanted on the way to the promised land. Well, this time God provided meat. He caused quail to fall on the ground three feet deep, but it came with plague and it killed those who complained. So do you need a clearer picture of what God thinks of complaining? Well, there is a clearer picture right after this. There's one more. God's still faithful to his promises. He brings this generation into the promised land, right up to the doorstep. So to speak, all they have to do is, is enter in, take the land. But when the people learn that the land is filled with mighty warriors, what do they do? How do they respond? Do they pray in faith? For help to overcome? No, they they grumble and complain in doubt. There's no way they're going to be able to conquer this land. Moses brought them all this way for nothing. Would have been better if they died in Egypt or died in the wilderness than to die in this land, they say. They even go so far as to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt. I mean, just, just think, after all God had done for them, supernaturally delivered them from slavery, from death, giving them life and land, blessing, prosperity, but it wasn't good enough. After all this, they still couldn't just trust God to deliver. He has provided, be content with his provision, trust him for your needs. But this, this is unbelief. This is a lack of trust. This is rebellion against God, his will, his plan, His provision, and this time it's met with God's full righteous discipline. This is Numbers 14, 27 through 29. God says, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they're making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you: your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Israel was still God's chosen people, but even God's children can only spit in his face so many times before they invoke His discipline. And really, isn't that what a spoiled, greedy, selfish, complaining child needs sometimes? It's just some discipline to be reminded of all they should be thankful for instead of just complaining. And once there was a British mother about a 14-year-old daughter who always complained about dinner, didn't want the food, didn't like the food her mother prepared. This is a while ago. The mother got so fed up that she decided to put her daughter... On the same diet she had to eat during World War II. And so one week's ration was 14 ounces of meat, three eggs, three pounds of potatoes, and two ounces of cheese. For the week. Sunday dinner was bread, butter, and one hard-boiled egg. The daughter stopped complaining. Hopefully, though, we can learn from Israel's bad example. And like I mentioned, this is one of the, the reasons this is recorded for us. In Exodus and Numbers. And Paul speaks of Israel's wilderness wanderings in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says this in verse 6. He's talking about Israel in the wilderness. He said, now these things happened as examples for us. That we would not crave evil things as they also craved. He says in verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord. As some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. We're meant to learn this lesson from Israel. God wants your heart. He wants your faith. He wants your trust. He's worthy of these things. He will deliver you into his eternal kingdom. He will care for you. Be content with his plan and his provision. But the Israelites fell in the wilderness because they, they just did not trust God or that plan. You have to think about what their complaining signified. And if for one, complaining represents taking for granted all that you have. And for us, with a Christian perspective, think about all of the spiritual blessings you have. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ Like manna from heaven, it's just an overwhelming amount. We've been given spiritually every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have enough, spiritually speaking. Yeah, you may not have a fancy car, but eternally speaking, we we are satisfied. Anytime you complain, though, even about material things, since we live with an eternal perspective, would you say that's not an insult to God's abounding grace? I mean, we've been given eternal life In Christ, God has sacrificed his son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins in our place to give us eternity with him. Promised land, it's just just right there. We're, We're almost there, but on the way, like we don't have enough, we don't have a nice enough car. So we're gonna grumble and complain against our heavenly father because he hasn't given us all of our desires on our way there. After you realize the magnitude of gift uh, the grace gift given to you in salvation. Even though we're not in that kingdom yet, really, what, what can we legitimately grumble about before God? Hey, let your request be made known. You, you need something, you want something, pray to your Heavenly Father. He does care for you, but grumble, complain, murmur, dispute, argue. No, we put those away. That betrays a heart of ingratitude. In addition, grumbling and disputing reveal a lack of trust and faith in God. Think about why you complain in life, why I sometimes complain in life, right? It's usually over some negative circumstance that's outside your control. You don't have enough money. You're stuck in a low-paying job. Your car broke down. You slam your, door in, you slam your hand in the door and you got, you got to wear a cast for a month. A you know, long list of things that just no one likes so we complain. We can make a COVID-19 list, right? You're out of work. You can't go to your favorite restaurant. You've got to homeschool your kids. You have to wait in line, wear a mask everywhere. That politician is making all the wrong decisions. The list goes on. What you have to realize, though, is that although you may not be in control of these things, who is? God. God's still sovereign over all of our life's circumstances, even the bad ones. Now, God is not some wicked taskmaster who delights in causing you calamity, but he's he's sovereign over all these things. And he allows even negative circumstances in your life to test you, to refine you, to perfect your faith and trust in him. That's what he's after. He wants your purified, refined faith, full strength faith that only comes when you're passed through a fire of testing. Again, think back to Israel. You know, God in the process of redeeming them, he was bringing them to the promised land. But in that process, he took them through the desert. One of the harshest deserts in the land. Had no food, no water. There's no way that desert could sustain the two million plus people. God was forcing them to rely on him. He did that on purpose to test them, to refine their faith and trust In him. He's not just trying to make their lives miserable. He was giving them an opportunity to trust him. And you likewise have to know and believe that God cares for you as his child if you're in Christ, and he's going to work out all things for your good, eternally speaking, in Christ. Look, maybe you have too small a vision. You're only thinking here and now. Think eternally, as we've talked about you know, several Sundays ago, but even if you, you're not sensing the ultimate good in your life right now, at least you can see it on the cross where God redeemed you in Christ. He's, he's declared your eternal security and, and grace gift given to you on the cross. We are eternally blessed and secure in Christ. That's enough to fulfill. That's enough to satisfy. That's enough to make us say thank you every day. You could have only a dollar to your name, no car, failing health. You could still say, I am thankful because I have Christ. That's what God wants from you. But when you refuse to accept the plan of God for your life, which sometimes includes the road marked with suffering, but instead you grumble and complain, you're in effect shaking your fist at God. When you complain, you're you're in effect even though you don't believe this, but in, your, in effect, you're, you're saying God's not on the throne. He's not in control. Or if he is, he doesn't really care about you. He's not good. Or even still, he's maybe just not wise. Yeah, he has a plan, but his plan stinks. You've got a better one. You would write a much better story for your life if, if you were just in control. And since you're not, well, at least you can complain about it. When you complain, you're saying that God's timing is not best, his ways are not best. His purpose for your life is not best. These are lies we all believe in the moment of sin. And they all amount to rebellion against God. Because he is perfectly wise and just and right and good and loving and caring and wise. It's like the clay saying back to the potter, like, you're doing it all wrong. I, I know better. Let me, let me take over from here. But no, we need to put off these attitudes do all things without grumbling and disputing, without complaining and arguing. It is very simple, but it is not easy because your sinful flesh wants only to serve self. But the solution, as with all things, is to grow in trusting God more and just let your soul delight in Him. That is the path to contentment and thankfulness which are the antidotes to grumbling and complaining. You've got to grow in your faith to the point where you see Christ as enough of a treasure to fulfill your life, to satisfy you in life. Where even though you have a crummy car, even though you're still stuck in a small apartment, even though you have ongoing health issues, even though you're in a never-ending quarantine, you can still say, it's well with my soul. I have Christ. It's, It's well with my soul. I have a reason to, to give thanks today and to be content. It doesn't mean you don't take action to change your circumstances. It doesn't mean you don't pray and, and let your request be made known for God for improved health or a better job. Yeah, we still live and act and work out your salvation. It just means you're not going to shake your fist at God because of your circumstances, which is what we do when we complain. Now, we're not quite done. Because Paul issues this straightforward command in verse 14. Then he backs it up with his own three specific reasons for the command. These will be brief, but let's finish by looking at the the three reasons to obey this command in verses 15 and 16. First, don't complain for the sake of your holiness. Don't complain for the sake of your holiness. Now go back to Philippians 2, look at 14 and 15 again. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that, you catch that? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God and above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Realize that when it comes to the sin of complaining, your holiness is at stake. Like Israel, God calls us to holiness, to live lives set apart from the crooked and perverse generation around us. But when you complain, you blend right in. You lose that distinctive taste. I mean, that's, that's how everyone in the world responds. We know that. Complaining is part of our culture. Israel, likewise, had become just as crooked and perverse as the nations around them. But God calls us to be separate to be different, to be holy. And so when adversity comes, when trouble comes, or when quarantine inconvenience comes, you know, instead of complaining, our attitude should show off peace, contentment, and trust. In doing this, that's how we prove ourselves, he says, blameless and innocent. Don't you want to be proven blameless and innocent in God's eyes? Then you can sleep real easy at night if in God's eyes you're proven blameless and innocent. Blameless means to be above accusation or blame. It describes behavior that cannot be criticized by others. Innocent means unmixed or pure. It is used to refer to undiluted wine or unmixed metal. You put these two words together, you get above reproach. What this means is that when those in the world look at our lives They can find no legitimate reproach against us. We can't stop the world from hating us because they hate our master and what we stand for. So be it. But far be it from us to to give the world an occasion to slander our Lord by our own grumbling or disputing. The world happily walks along a crooked path, but we can't join them. We're called to a higher way, a narrow way way. And so be distinct. And for the sake of your holiness, do not grumble and dispute like those in the world. Now, speaking of those in the world, secondly, don't complain for the sake of your witness. Don't complain for the sake of your witness. See at the end of verse 15, this is among whom, speaking of this generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast The word of life. Our personal holiness is at stake when it comes to the sin of complaining. So is our witness. God calls us to be different from this crooked and perverse generation. But he doesn't call us to abandon this crooked and perverse generation. Like Peter preached in Acts 2.40, we are to be saved from this generation, not saved away from this generation. Meaning as the saying goes, we are to be in the world, not of the world. Like I know it, it'd be way easier to leave the world behind and go live in a little Christian bubble somewhere, but that's just not our mission. Like Israel, we're to be holy, set apart from the nations, but also a light to the nations. You can't do that when you're hiding away. Like Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor nor does anyone take a light, or rather, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And God wants us distinct from the world, but square in the middle of it, on a lampstand, so that they all can see the light you can see though how our complaining among all of our other sins would diminish our witness to the world. It it knocks down our platform to share the gospel. You know, Philippians two 16 says we're to be holding fast. The word of life, hold fast, hold forth. It's talking about holding out the word of life. We're holding forth to the world, the gospel. And as you live in the world, You're holding out the gospel for all to see, for all to believe by your words and your deeds. But look, if your hands are dirty, who wants to to take the gospel from you, so to speak? Your life is like a plate. The gospel is the food on the plate. That's the bread of life that has all the power. The food is always good, but if it's served on this unclean, filthy, putrid plate, who's going to want that food? Now, we understand God is sovereign in salvation. He can use an unclean vessel to deliver the gospel and save someone. But look, this is an obedience issue. He's calling us to be clean vessels, in a manner of speaking, that that we might testify to the world with our lives of the transforming grace of the gospel, which we speak. And in so doing, we highlight the power of the gospel, which God uses to save the lost. I mean, it's also common sense how attracted to uh, how attracted are you to people who complain nonstop? Do you want to be around those people? Do you want to buy into what they're saying? I think we naturally recoil from just the nonstop complainer. And so beware complaining and arguing, lest your own witness be diminished. We're God's lighthouses to the world. Well, if you fall into complaining and arguing just as much as the world, That light goes out. But instead, let your light shine. Lastly, and number three, don't complain for the sake of your leaders. Don't complain for the sake of your holiness, for the sake of your witness. But thirdly, for the sake of your leaders. Notice, Paul makes it personal at the end of verse 16, his his reason why they should not grumble and dispute. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. Because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is his third reason, and now he makes it personal. If the Philippian church blows their holiness and their witness by giving in to the sin of complaining, his own labor over them will prove in vain. And he doesn't want to see that. Paul wants to take glory in the Philippians and literally boast in them. Any father would be proud if his son hit the game-winning home run. And likewise, Paul is talking about a sanctified pride in his spiritual children. This is not a worldly boasting we're talking about, but a heavenly boasting. It's not a present pride, but a future pride. It's on the day of Christ. He wants them to obey because on that day, he wants reason to, to boast in a sanctified manner, you might say. On the day of Christ, all believers will be judged, not in respect to salvation, but in respect to stewardship. How did you run your race? How did you steward the life and the gifts given to you? You'll be judged and rewarded accordingly. And, and on that day, Paul wants reason to boast. He did not want his labor over the flipping church to prove in vain as the church was just torn apart by grumbling and disputing. And so it goes for all church leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Now there's some pastors. They're just mere men, but God has entrusted to them some of his authority for the sake of being under shepherds of shepherding the flock of God and you your turn is you're called to let them shepherd you with what? With joy, not with grief. In other words, don't be a grumbling, complaining, disputing sheep like Israel was to Moses in the wilderness. He says that would be unprofitable for you. As we've learned, God doesn't take lightly these subtle sins of complaining and disputing. You know, before you complain about your leaders in the church, this would even apply to in the state. How about you trying first, diligently, fervently praying for them before complaining about them? God just might change them, just might change you. Well, I hope this time has helped you rethink the sin of complaining. Maybe it's escaped your notice in your life. And we all can be complainers the circumstances of life or the relationships of life. But I hope you see this morning that all such complaining is really against God. Even if you don't intend it to be against God, it always is. And not only does such complaining tear our, our relationships apart, but it can affect our relationship with God. You know, back in Exodus, when the people complained they always expressed their complaints to Moses, not to God. They always complained to Moses and about Moses, but Moses knew better. He saw through their complaints. He says in Exodus 16 verse nine, your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And so it goes for us. Open your eyes to this. Let the spirit convict you and change you. Maybe right now, All you're facing is quarantine inconvenience. But otherwise, maybe you have genuine trouble and trial in your life. Either way, though, don't let your knee-jerk response be complaining. You have to see your circumstances not like those in the world. You have to see it with a spiritual lens on. Okay, I'm not happy about this, this circumstance, but what's God doing here? What could he be doing? How could he be working this out for his glory. What good might he be bringing about? How can he be sanctifying me through this time? Even if you don't find a ready answer, still trust he's good. He's sovereign. He's wise. He loves you. He cares for you. He will work it all out for your good. So instead of complaining and disputing, just just rest in his arms. Your needs that are legitimate Take them to the Lord in prayer. Genuinely, fervently pray for them. And then take action if need be. But trust him to provide. Trust him to deliver. Be content with this plan in your life. Turn your adversities into opportunities to grow in your trust. That's what pleases God the most. That's what he wants from his children in our time of, of wilderness. We're not there yet in that promised land. We're in our time of trial and testing this whole life. Where God is refining our faith. It's what he wants from us the most. So let us proceed even through our present trying times with a real childlike trust and dependence on our heavenly father. Knowing he surely will safely deliver us to that promised land. Let's pray together. Our gracious father in heaven, you are our father. And you are a good father. We need to remember that. At times our, our life can feel out of control. It can feel troubled. Our desires are not met. Sometimes even it feels like our needs are not met. We, we have many trials and tribulation in this life. Such as the effect of living in a fallen world. But we need to remember you're still God. You're still our God. You're still our father. You're still on the throne. You care for us. Even our trials are designed by your good hand to test us, to perfect us, to make us like Christ. Who himself was in a manner of speaking perfected by his sufferings. We follow him in the way of the cross, and we have to accept this. Help us to grow in our trust in you that eternally you will bring about our good. You care for our daily needs, you give us our daily bread. We, we need to be content in that. Help us to grow in, in contentment and thankfulness. Remind us of the cross daily as the wellspring of our contentment and thankfulness. And as circumstances of life arise that challenge us, we just run back to the cross. We need to pray, pray for our challenges, pray for our leaders, that which troubles us. But Lord, keep us free from these subtle sins of complaining, disputing. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like the world. We want a distinct light to shine that the world may see the gospel and the transformation, the peace and the power that it brings. So may we be those lights in this time especially. Bless us as your children, and we may uh, we resolve to trust you until we enter that that promised land. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.